0: We have people come to, and he's the person that you can find if you need help at various points or things that you've forgotten or something arises in your situation. So, welcome to Jose. The Buddha said, how amazing that all beings have the basic nature of awakening, and yet they don't know it. So they drift on the ocean of great suffering, lifetime after lifetime. And in an interview today, someone came in uh, full of amazement, realizing that six billion of us cause our own suffering, and we don't know it. And this insight had brought this person sort of alternately first to tears and then to laughter at the sort of cosmic joke of it and then back into tears. So the same insight that, that um, there is this enormous amount of suffering that we're caught in. Six billion of us, that's a lot of suffering when you think about it. And we don't see it. In one of the chants that is done um, at the Buddhist monasteries, um, there's a line that says that the teaching of the Buddha is like a lamp illuminating the path and its fruit, the deathless. It's a line I love when when I'm there and I get to chant it. The teaching of the Buddha is like a lamp illuminating the path and its fruit, the deathless. And we know, all of you know, that um, the teachings and the practice have been a light. They've been a light for each one of us here. You're here because at some point you read a book, you heard a talk, a friend said something to you. You each have your own story of how it is that you began to turn towards the Dharma and the light of the Dharma and the teachings of the Buddha drew you further and further into your practice. One of the things that's been quite wonderful for me at this particular retreat is that a year ago I was on pilgrimage in India and I was visiting the different pilgrimage sites And so as I've gone through the days of the retreat since we started two and a half weeks ago, I've been sort of going, oh, okay, at this point I was at Delhi, and then I was at Rajgir, and then I was at Bodh Gaya, and then I was at Sarnath, where he taught about the Four Noble Truths, and, and so forth, through each of the places. And one of the things that struck me when I was there in India was the power, again, of the teachings and the fact that as I traveled with the small group of people that I was with from pilgrimage site to pilgrimage site, we were a few people among many others, many other people from all over the world, people from Japan and from Sri Lanka and from India itself and um, from the United States and from Europe and South America, and, and they were all We'd all come to because of these teachings and that the light is still burning so strongly. It's been burning for a long time. And when I was at Bodhgaya, which is the place, the temple, which is where the Bodhi tree is, where the Buddha sat and and came to his full awakening, um, one of the wonderful things about Bodhgaya is it's been there so long, this particular temple, that in fact the the village and the countryside around it had built up higher and higher and higher and you can look you can find old pictures of the temple where you had to go you actually went in at what is now about the second story and as they've excavated it and renovated it they had to open up at deeper and deeper layers so now when you come to the temple you walk downstairs and so that you're dropping down below the level of the village Around you, down and down and down, and then you go into the temple, which for me was was such a sense of oh, this this very holy sacred space has been here for a long, long time. And as I would sit there and practice there, people would come in, would circumambulate the temple, and then um, and do their very many practices. Um, here and there around the temple, there would be little altars. You know, one of the great things about India is it's not like our national park system here, so there's no rangers who say, you can't do that. You know, so people would put little altars and flowers and candles and at, at different places around the temple um, at Bodhgaya. So as I was thinking about that today, I was thinking perhaps out by the entryway. Um, to Spirit Rock, instead of the sign that says Spirit Rock Meditation Center, maybe we should have a sign that says Spirit Rock Lamp Factory. Because what's happening is we're all coming here to learn to tend to our own lamps, to um, see if we can also then carry that light of the Dharma. The word Vipassana, remember, means to see clearly. And that means that as you sit, um, insights arise. And for everyone here, I I can't think of anyone that I've talked to, that that has not been true at this retreat already. Some insight, some piece of wisdom has arisen, and, um, and you're seeing a bit more clearly. It's also a purification practice. And so what that means is that as we sit, we see the places where we don't see so clearly, where we don't, where there's obscurations and where the light and wisdom even that's in there doesn't necessarily get out. And so there's a very wonderful teaching that the Buddha gave that is specifically supporting um, supporting cleaning up our lamps, if you will. And it's called The Teaching of the Factors of Enlightenment, or um, sometimes I think of it as the Elements of Awakening. <laughs> so these are, are factors. These are things that you can look for and that you can work with in your practice that are present in awakened states. And you can see them there. They, they come with some level of awakening, and they can also be cultivated. You can, you can actually... <laughs> Um, work with them a little to, to try to develop them. It's a bit like taking care of your garden. Um, so you do some weeding and some watering and some hoeing and things grow, and, and so it is with um, the factories of enlightenment that if you tend to your practice and work with them in some very specific ways, some of these things will show up and um, will help you help you to awaken. There are factors which um, really, when worked with, counter some of the difficult places as we sit. They counter the hindrances. So, if you remember that list of hindrances of desire and aversion and restlessness and sloth and torpor and doubt, sloth and torpor being sleepiness, but sloth and torpor sounds much better and more interesting than sleepiness. And so, Um, Working with the factors of enlightenment will also help help you with the hindrances. And there are also factors that, when worked with skillfully, help to balance the energies in the mind um, so that the mind is steady and smooth. So these factors, there are seven of them. And um, the first factor is mindfulness, and it's kind of in a category of its own. And then there are three factors which are energizing factors. The factor of investigation, that of energy or effort. We've heard some about that already on this retreat. And the factor of joy or rapture. And then there are three factors which are calming factors. The factor of tranquility, that of concentration, and that of equanimity. So, mindfulness. Mindfulness. Mindfulness is the foundation. None of us would, would be here, I don't think, if, if it weren't for mindfulness. That's what you've come to do. You came to a mindfulness retreat, and you're here to develop this practice of mindfulness. And it's, it's um, a requirement, in a way, for all of the other factors on the list. It supports all of them, and it creates a place on which they rest. And in the two-and-a-half weeks, for some of you, um, that you've been practicing, we've been systematically developing our mindfulness practice. And for those of you who just came, that's what you're going to be doing in the coming days of your retreat. And so you remember from when Sylvia talked the other night and was reading from the Satipatthana Sutta, there are four basic areas or foundations of mindfulness. Um, There's the foundation of the breath and the body itself. And so that's where we started, with paying attention to the breath and the body. it's a very wonderful foundation. And um, one of my teachers used to like to remind us that, you know, if you're in the body, then you're in the present moment. Um, It's such a gift to have this breath and this body, because as soon as you're you're there as soon as you're in it. You're in the present moment. There's that foundation that we've been talking about lots, it seems, and the different talks of the awareness of pleasant and unpleasant and neutral, the feeling tone of our experience, and noticing that because that's the place where the story tends to kick in. There's the foundation of the many states of the mind and the heart. And I know that's one that all of you are well acquainted with by now, those states of desire and aversion and grief and anger and fear and all of the things that that come and go in this mind and this heart as you sit there and, and, and really um, seeing them and investigating them and um, trying to come to understand them a bit. And then there's the foundation of what's called the dharmas, of the the laws that we begin to see, of really understanding how it is that the Four Noble Truths works, and, and seeing how um, there are these five hindrances that get in the way, and, and the factors of enlightenment, is in fact, is part of this foundation of mind- mindfulness, seeing these things that, that will help us to wake up. And you remember we talked a bit that, m- that when the Buddha taught about mindfulness, he said it was a very, very powerful tool. Remember that wonderful passage about, he says, if you do it for seven months, and then he says, no, 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 seven weeks, and then no, 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 seven days. And it keeps getting smaller and smaller how much you need to do it in order to have it really profound, you profoundly wake you up. <clears throat> to, to realize is to enter fully the present moment the medieval alchemists use the image of a man putting his head into the mouth of a lion to symbolize the potency of the realization of the present moment. So a moment of mindfulness is putting yourself right in the mouth of the lion, right in putting your head in the mouth of the lion. It's that powerful to be present in the moment. So it's a teaching, this teaching about mindfulness, that says, show up, you know, be present, see what's happening, just as it is. As Robert said a number of times, notice the obvious, notice the obvious. We keep trying to pretend the obvious isn't there, isn't that strange? And, and we do it over and over again. Mindfulness says, see what is obvious, be 100% honest about what's happening in the moment. About a year ago, I was teaching a retreat in the Kansas City area. And um, retreats there, some of them are held in this wonderful old monastery, college, school, with large dormitories that have been around for a while. And um, the rooms don't, of course, don't have phones because um, it's a retreat center and a college and a dormitory. But there was a little payphone kind of cubicle um, on each hall. And when I traveled to teach retreats, I tried to stay in touch with my husband and talk with him almost every day. And so it was time to make that call. And it was not too long before the Dharma talk. And so I went in and closed the door to the telephone booth. and dialed him up and we had a nice conversation and then I brought it to an end because it was time to go give the talk and I hung up the phone and pushed on the door and the door didn't open <laughs> and I thought oh this is interesting and I pushed up higher didn't open I pushed down lower and I pushed with both hands and I thought oh what am I going to do you know there I could I could hear the bell in the distance, and the yogis had all left the hallway by then. And So I thought, you know, if I, if, I, if I can't get out, I'm going to have to yell, and I'm going to have to yell really loud. And That didn't exactly seem like what one ought to do on a retreat. So I pushed a couple more times, and the door didn't open. I just thought, you know, what is happening with this telephone? And so I sat there for a moment and pushed a couple more times and felt really scared. I could feel the fear coming up, you know, trapped in the telephone booth all by myself. Maybe I'd have to wait for, I mean, how long would it take them to realize that I was missing? You know, They might just think it was an exercise in mindfulness and sit there quietly without me. I didn't know. And finally, I took a deep breath and I reached out and I pulled instead of pushing, and the door of course opened. Because that was how the door opened. <laughs> it mindfulness is wonderful. It's a great tool <laughs> when you use it. And you know, which way is the door of your mind going right now? You know? Are you pushing when perhaps it would help be helpful to be pulling? Are you pulling when it would be better to be pushing, because that's how it is. What's the truth of this particular moment? Is your mind sluggish? Is your mind agitated? Are you lost? Are you calm? What's needed right now? It's really, it's fun to kind of do this, you know, to come to this place of, all right, I'm really going to be mindful, I'm really going to be truthful about what my situation is. What's the point? of not being truthful when you're here on the cushion. There's no point at all. And mindfulness is the ground of wisdom and love. It's that from which insight and the opening of the heart arise. It seeks the true nature of all being. And when we work with mindfulness, then we can develop these other factors that are on the list and, then, and use them as needed to balance You know, it's possible to die and to never have been here on this planet. One friend of mine who used to do hospice work said it was really interesting to her to see how many people only began to realize that they were here when they were told that they weren't going to be here in three months or six months or however how long. Some time ago... I received this wonderful little book from um, the Zen hospice people. It has four questions. When in your life did you stop dancing? When in your life did you stop singing? When in your life did you stop being enchanted with stories? When in your life did you stop being comfortable with the sweet territory of silence?" So those are wonderful questions that remind us that so often we're not here. And mindfulness is that practice which will bring us right here into this moment. So. As we develop mindfulness, then it it quite naturally leads us into the next factor on these, this list of um, elements that help us with waking up, and that's the factor of investigation. What is happening? What is happening in this moment? And another one of these chants that I really like, there are three phrases that are descriptive of the dharma. One word is ehipasiko and it means encouraging investigation. Another is opanaiko, which means leading onwards. And the third phrase is pachatam vedita bo to be experienced individually by the wise. No one Not even the Buddha, him or herself, can do this practice for you. No one can wake up for you. That's really wonderful. It's amazing how much respect the Buddha must have had for human beings to give us this teaching that absolutely requires us to investigate our own experience, to see what is the nature of this moment. You have to go into your experience. Where does it begin, this thing that's happening to you? This sound, this itch, this sadness in your heart. Where does it end? What happens when you really take your attention right into the heart of it? What happens when you go into it not knowing? That's one of the best pieces of advice in all of Dharma practice. Don't know. Please don't know. Don't know anything. There's a great quote from Suzuki Roshi that says, In the beginner's mind there are many options and in the mind of the expert there are few. So... Don't know. Have what I sometimes call baby minds. You know how sometimes a baby, if you watch a really young baby and they're lying there and they start, their hand comes wandering into their field of view, the way sometimes kind of like this, and they look at it like, what's that? What's that? Because they don't even know that it belongs to them. They don't know that it's a hand. They don't know about skin. They don't know about bones. They don't know about picking things up. They don't know any of that. And they're totally interested and fascinated. What is this thing? And the process of growing and learning is a process of investigation. Slowly, slowly, they find out what this thing is. This particular step, I think, requires a lot of courage. It takes a lot of courage to go deeply into our experience. Some things don't make sense. You know, if you read the accounts of the experiences of the mystics, you know they'll say, well, I was sitting there, and all of a sudden there was this vast hole in the middle of my being. And it took me a long time before I realized, They meant exactly what they said, that there was something about their experience that could only be described as a vast hole in the middle of their being or this green whatever, you know. I mean, you read the accounts, you'll you'll see those things. And it's a little difficult sometimes when, when those things happen and we go, oh, well, that doesn't make sense. Maybe I shouldn't believe it. Maybe I shouldn't investigate it. Maybe I shouldn't be curious. Some things are scary. Sometimes stuff comes up that's really hard to see. It may be old memories. It may be um, some sense of who it is that you are. Sometimes it's some deep awareness of your own suffering or the suffering of other beings. And to go into it and to investigate the experience is not easy. It takes a lot of courage. On this trip to India last winter. One day we were sitting around as was our practice. Um, we would have had some lunch and we were um, talking about some of the stories of the life of the Buddha. And this fellow walked over with this sack. And he sat down, mm, I don't know, 20-30 feet away from us and laid his sack out and out came two very large snakes, cobras. And it made all of us very nervous um, because we hadn't—we hadn't any of us spent very much time um, around cobras, and even the person, <laughs> even the person who was leading the trip, was himself an Indian, um, was feeling a little cautious. He didn't know quite what this guy was up to, but gradually, gradually, it came out that um, the man was somebody who was from a, a farm where they actually made. Uh, anti-venom from cobras, and he said, I don't really know, but he said that these cobras did not have any fangs anymore. Um, and so he played with them, and we watched them, and some people went and got in the bus and watched out through the window. <laughs> and um, But one of my friends went out and picked up one of the cobras at his invitation, stood there and held it, and felt it and investigated cobraness. I was very impressed. That takes courage. And I think sometimes as we sit, there are difficult places that are a bit cobra-like and snaky and they come along and it's really hard to stay right there on your cushion and go, okay, I'm going to try to check this out, even though It makes me very scared. Anything that happens in your experience on the cushion can be met with investigation. Anything. Anything can teach you. Anything. John mentioned the other night, I think it was at the question and answer session, about that wonderful Tibetan teaching that says that every being on the planet is enlightened but one. And you know who the one is, and they're all doing what they're doing in order to help you wake up. I like to think that it's every every being and it's everything on the planet is doing what it's doing in order to help me wake up. It's it sounds it's a fun teaching to talk about, and you think, oh, that's lovely. Oh, they're all doing what they're doing to help me wake up. But then, you know, when your roommate is snoring one more night, or, you know, this or that is happening, and you don't like it, and then you think, oh, wait a minute, this is to help me wake up. Um, then you begin to see, oh, this is, this is actually quite a profound teaching. And when you hold that teaching, this is, it's all to help me wake up. I can, if, I, if I investigate a little further, maybe I'll see something that will help me to see more deeply. It just takes a lot of courage. Jack Coinfield um, says that we say to ourselves, I must see for myself what is true. What makes someone a true heir of the Buddha, what makes a Buddha, is the courage and willingness to look directly and honestly into the body, the heart, and the mind without relying on or settling for what others say is true. So this... This practice is really a practice, then, of becoming a Buddha, to have that kind of courage. So we have the foundation of mindfulness, we start really investigating our experience. As we do that, then um, that leads us into the area of giving some attention to the factor of effort or energy. So we've already talked a lot about energy, so I'm not going to spend too much time on it. On the other hand, it's an enormously important factor and um, needs, I think, revisiting over and over again. (sighs) Working with effort and energy. The image that I like a lot is the image of riding a bicycle. So if you're riding a bicycle, it's really important to know exactly how much energy you need. If you're going uphill, you need a lot of energy. You shift your gears, you pedal harder, you do all the things that you do in order to bring enough energy to the wheels to keep you upright to get up to the top of the hill you get to the top of the hill, and then you go down the other side. If you continue to do the same thing going downhill that you did going uphill, you may be working much too hard. And in fact, you may get out of control and the bicycle will fall over. So when you go downhill, it's helpful to back off a little and to relax and maybe even to put the brakes on a bit so that you stay steady going downhill. And then maybe you go along kind of level for a while and you're not in any hurry, so you can relax. But then maybe it's time to hurry up a little, and then you have to pedal a little faster. And so it goes, one moment after another. Well, it sounds probably pretty familiar, right? This is how it is on retreat a lot. A little faster, a little slower, a little uphill, a little downhill. Um, the big thing with energy is to not get caught in striving. Don't get caught in striving. but Striving is the place where um, we misuse our energy, and um, we wear ourselves out. We get a little fried sometimes on retreats. And so to really watch that place, if you sit down with the idea that this time, by God, you are going to get enlightened, you are going to stay here absolutely motionless as long as it takes, have fun. <laughs> Um, it probably um, it sooner or later. I mean, if you did this, if you were to come in at eight forty-five and do that, I would predict that at some point later on in the evening, um, bed will begin to look really good, and off you will go. It's we can't. We can't. Um, striving isn't really the way to do it. You know, the Buddha. Remember, there's a wonderful story about the Buddha. The Buddha did a lot of practices like that when he first went out, after he left his home. And he went and he found these very wonderful teachers, the best teachers of the the time, and he studied under them and he did extreme ascetic practices of all sorts, learned how to do very profound meditation practices. He did a lot of starvation of the body in the end, there's a lovely, no, it's not so lovely actually, but there's a quite graphic description of him being terribly thin, his skin was black, if you touched his stomach you got his backbone, if you touched his backbone you got his stomach. And somewhere in there he realized that this wasn't getting him the awakening that he wanted. And so he began to eat. One of the places I visited actually on that trip was the place where the young woman offered him um, some rice and milk, and he ate. Um, and then he had a memory, and he remembered sitting in the garden, watching his father. And he realized in that memory of just in being in that place that probably all of us know from when we were children, of sitting and watching and being, and he, he had this idea that perhaps there was a middle way. And it's a middle way that includes the body as well as some level of renunciation. And it's a middle way, I think, also in terms of energy. And so sorting out exactly what is your requirement for energy is important. You know, you're each having, each person here is having a different retreat. Some of you are having a retreat that's about living with some illness or difficulty in the body and you're having to go slow and carefully to work with your body. Some of you are having retreats that are about grief and your heart is really sad and open and it's important to sit and be in a way that really takes care of that heart. Some of you are filled with passion and energy and are really ready to go. And you are sitting long and staying up late and getting up early. That's exactly as it should be all of these different levels of energy. And not only that, and this is particularly true for those of you who are here for a couple of months, you'll see that even within one retreat, in the course of your two months, there will be times of intense energy, and there will be times when you will need to slow down and relax a little. And developing the ability to see that and to know, oh, what exactly... Do I need to do right now? You now, is is it going well? Is my heart and are my heart and mind open? You know, the state is skillful. Can I sustain it? You know, or um, maybe the state isn't so skillful. You're restless and filled with thought, and there's a lot of aversion. And so, what do you need to do to let go of that and to move away from it? So these are the four right efforts that James talked about. You know, or Or maybe you want to encourage more skillful states to arise, or find ways so that the less skillful ones don't arise. And working with effort in a very conscious and mindful way to deepen your practice. So that leads us to the next factor, which is the factor of joy and rapture. So you have mindfulness, You've done some investigation, the energy's up, you're really, really going into your experience and you're working with the energy in a way that seems right for you. And so then what happens is the mind gets quite light and quite joyful and quite delighted by our experience. I was coming out from lunch today and the landscape actually was dotted with different yogis who were sitting there some were just looking at the stream you know just whoa look at that and some were looking at the trees and at one point there was a deer up on the hill and you know how they stand up there with their little ears kind of going out like that and six or so people were standing there just looking at the ears of the deer just filled with interest and fascination at these very simple experiences. Or you you go into breakfast and you take a bite of banana. Ah, oh, you know, banana. Imagine that something on the planet could taste like that. And you're just completely caught in this experience of banana Or the turkey cackles and you hear that cackling and it's like, what? How did anything ever create a turkey that would make a sound like that? And the sound is so interesting and and you get just into the vibration on the ear and it's doing this and it's doing that and you're utterly fascinated or you're sitting and some sadness comes and a tear trickles down your face and you can feel it moving slowly down and you get so caught in the experience of the tear moving down your cheek that the sadness disappears, and you're just in this experience. It's so intense, so intense. So that that this factor of, of deep joy in our experience. And sometimes with it, there's some energetic releases that happen in the body for some people, not for everyone, that there can be some twitching or some itching or some sense of the body twisting. It happens for some people, it doesn't happen for some people. It's not anything particularly special. And there are two main dangers with that kind of thing. One is we can go, oh, this is really interesting. I must mean I must mean I'm close to being enlightened and we get kind of attached to it. Or we don't like it, because sometimes they're not so pleasant. And we some aversion comes up and actually they're to be worked with, with that same mindfulness, that foundation of mindfulness, that we work with everything else. It's interesting because with this factor, sometimes even difficult places, particularly in the body, can be quite interesting. And you're sitting and you go into that sensation of what's happening in your hip, or like the example, the wonderful example that Robert gave it, of his, in his talk, of this experience in his back and going in and it becomes, became flames and fire and then he found he could swim in it. That's the experience of joy and rapture. When I was quite new in this practice, I had been um, visiting with some friends up in the foothills of the Sierras with my husband and we'd gone out on a moonlight walk one night, one of these nights quite like these. And um, I was sort of walking along with him thinking, isn't this lovely to have friends who are crazy enough to go out walking in the moonlight at night? And in that moment, stepped into a pothole and fell and I could hear something pop in my ankle as I went down. And it turned out, I found out later, that I had both dislocated and broken the ankle. Mm. So they took me into the little hospital in Mariposa. They said, yes indeed you've broken your ankle and it will require surgery and so we might as well send you home to Santa Cruz because then you'll be in a hospital close to your home. And so they um, you know, put it in a splint and um, got me kind of settled in the back of um, a sort of a station wagon, and, um, but they couldn't give me a lot of medication because I was not going to be under any kind of medical supervision. I had had not very much meditation instruction at that point, but I had had some. And I knew that I was supposed to stay with what was going on with me And I knew I needed to do it in a way that was gentle and as spacious as possible. And I'm here to tell you, they were the best instructions. And that even under those circumstances, it became quite interesting. And I don't remember that long ride home in the middle of the night, it was probably four or five hours to get home, um, as being awful. I actually remember it as being quite interesting. And it didn't mean that I didn't hurt. Sometimes I hurt a lot. And it didn't mean that I didn't get tired. Sometimes I got really tired. And it didn't mean that I didn't wish it would go away, because sometimes I did. And there were moments when it was quite fascinating what was going on in the ankle. So it's a, that place of joy, and it can come even... I wasn't on retreat. I wasn't in a profound meditative state, certainly, but I knew enough to be able to go in with enough interest and energy and mindfulness and then came to that place of joy, even then. Okay, so that's the, the rousing factors. Then there's three that are calming, and the first of those is um, tranquility or ease. Some of you who were here a couple of weeks ago remember that passage that I read um, about the speed at which we live. And if you've been here a couple of weeks, you've probably forgotten (laughs) that the rest of the world is out there going 90 miles an hour. But they are. I was just out there yesterday. And so we live very, very fast, very full lives with some of us who even need appointment books to keep track of our appointment books, it seems like. And so it's important as we come to this practice to cultivate some sense of tranquility. Here's a a few lines from a poet um, whose name is Gense. He says, Trailing my stick I go down to the garden edge, Call to a monk to go out the pine gate. A cup of tea with my mother, Looking at each other, enjoying our tea together. In the deep lanes, few people in sight. The dog barks when anyone comes or goes. Fall floods have washed away the planks of the bridge. Shouldering our our sandals, we wade the narrow stream. So he walks through nature with a sense of calmness and tranquility. In a sense, what we're asked to do is to begin to sort of set the scene. With this, with this factor and to find a way in which we can be in a space that is calm and tranquil. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh in one of his writings on the subject says that it's important you, you look at what you do with your life when you get sick, you know how it is, you get sick and so you decide, oh I won't answer the phone today and I'll just sit here by the fire and you wrap your favorite shawl around you and you maybe get a cup of tea, and all of a sudden things slow down quite a lot, you know? So this is really what we're talking about, is creating some some space in which you can sit and walk and be. We come to a place like Spirit Rock, and you walk through that gate, and it's quite magical. Some of you, I know, go below there when you go out for walks at different points in the day. And I can imagine that you, like I, feel it when you walk through that gate and you come into this place that's protected and where the frogs are about the noisiest thing that we have when the turkeys are being quiet. And it's a place where we just sit and walk and be. And we move into a particular pose. It's a bit like in yoga sometimes when... Um, You step into a pose and you're there for a while and you just kind of hang and get settled and then you push it just a little bit further and stretch a little bit more. But that initial place of just resting in the pose is the place of developing some tranquility. It's the place in which we let go of our likes and our dislikes our need to control the situation. Ajahn Sumedho, um, in an essay that this one line of which I've carried around in my head for many, many years of my practice, says the two most important words, your mantra, if you will, are let go. He says, be like an earthworm who knows only two words. words—just is a lot for an earthworm. And, you know, that are let go, let go, let go. And so... And letting go is a way of creating a space of tranquility. Oh, well, this is how it is here, you know. And you let go. A poet, a line from a poem whose author I actually don't know, says, every place the wind carries me is home. It's that kind of letting go, which is the place of tranquility. On this trip, again, one of the early places we visited it was a place called Vulture's Peak, which is one of the places where the Buddha taught a lot. And he would go up to the top of this mountain, a small mountain, quite like these mountains that we have right around here, with a wonderful view. And he would sit up there and the people would come and, and he would teach. Sometimes he would just sit up there. And so now you can walk up and sit up there. It, it is a very good place to be. And it, it itself is tranquil. But the story that I particularly liked about it is not far from there. Um, there's a small building in which one of the benefactors of the Buddha, King Bimbisara, who was later overthrown by his son, was imprisoned. And because he was a king who had been imprisoned, he had a little bit of say about how his prison was. And he had them put a window that looked toward Vulture Peak. So that as he was there in his little prison cell, he could look out the window and see in the distance the Buddha walking up to Vulture Peak. And in this way, he created some space of calm and tranquility, even there in his prison cell. So then the next factor is the factor of concentration the ability to focus and still the mind so it stays with the object of your concentration. I asked a friend of mine a while back how it was that he came to practice Buddhism. And he said he had been in Vietnam and he had been... Um, done various things while he was there and one day they had gone out on some kind of a mission and he was what they called the door gun in the helicopter so he would sit there with his machine gun ready to fire if needed so they'd gone out on this mission and they were coming back and um, no one had been hurt nothing much had happened so they were feeling pretty good and the pilot was kind of excited and high. And as they flew back towards their base, they flew over or near a stupa in the Buddhist temple, and there were a group of monks who were circumambulating the stupa. And so the pilot said, oh good, let's circumambulate with the monks. And he took the helicopter down quite low, and he started to fly right over where the monks were. Well, if you've ever been near a helicopter that was low down. The noise is incredible. The wind is incredible. It's a scary experience. And so he flew very, very low over the monks, making this vast noise. And the monks just kept going around the temple, keeping apparently able to keep their minds very still, just doing their practice. And my friend said, in that moment, he knew that he wanted to find out what it was that they had that allowed them to stay that still under those very difficult circumstances. So it's a marvelous tool, this tool of concentration. It is a tool. It doesn't have any particular virtue in and of itself. It's a tool that you know all kinds of people use in different ways that we can develop in our practice. And it's necessary. It's really helpful to be be able to concentrate the mind in order to stay with our experience. So when you come to the retreat, we say, let's take the first four or five days, in the case of those of you who came a few weeks ago, to just be with the breath. So that by training the mind to stay with the breath and to come back over and over and over again, um, then then some stability actually grows in the mind. Its Concentration is the antidote for agitation and restlessness in the mind. It's a very difficult (coughs) antidote sometimes when the mind is really restless. It doesn't want to sit still. But if you can bring it to that place and say, okay, we're sitting still, we're going to be with the breath now for the rest of the sitting, um, in fact it can be very, very helpful. Another story. This this talk, I think, particularly lends itself to a lot of stories. Um, A couple of years ago, I was visiting in um, Zion National Park, and we had decided that we were interested to take some of these trails that um, in the park brochures say can be a bit risky, and um, if you have a fear of heights, you maybe shouldn't take them. So we took one, and it had a railing, and it wasn't particularly scary. And, um, but what is true is that I don't much like certain kinds of experiences with heights. So we thought, well, that was easy. Let's take this other trail. So we went up this other trail, up, 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 up. And it was fine. It was not a problem. And then we came to a place where the trail kind of went off at an angle up around the edge of this rock. It had a chain that you could hold on to. And then it went around the corner. So Russell, who doesn't worry about these things, went blip, 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 up and around the corner and disappeared. So I thought, okay. So I went up the stairs and I went around the corner and I took about two steps. And he was out ahead of me, maybe 30 feet. And I realized I was on a ledge that was about as wide as this zabaton, Not any wider. It tilted a little bit like this on the downside, there was a cliff that went straight up, and out the other side, there was nothing at all for many, many hundreds of feet. And Russell's just walking along. There's nothing to hold on to. There's just this little ledge, and he's strolling along like he's in downtown San Francisco. And I was terrified. I was totally terrified. And Followed along after him and hyperventilated, and why I didn't pass out and fall over, I to this day I do not know. And I came to the end and actually was ill, and we were at our destination, which was this wonderful little hanging canyon, very beautiful. And then I realized the only way out was to go back. I'd done a lot of meditation practice at this point, and I thought, well, I've learned something about concentration and focusing the mind. I ought to be able to do it. And it should help. It should bring some calm and some stability. So after we'd been there for quite a while, so that I really was able to unwind and relax a little bit, um, I devised a plan, which was to keep my eyes in on the, the wall side, and to, I had a mantra, which I will confess was the Hail Mary and was not a Buddhist mantra. <laughs> and, but, you know, she, she was great. She, she didn't mind that I was a Buddhist. And, um, and that I would periodically say to myself, I am walking on solid rock. And so I did. And it helped. And my mind stayed pretty still and I kept my eyes exactly where I said I would. And all of that training came to some fruit, some very useful fruit in that moment. There are two kinds of concentration. There's the kind of concentration, which was what I was doing, where you focus your attention pretty much on one thing, a mantra, an image, a candle flame, many of you have done those, or something like the breath where you just stay with this one thing. The breath moves a little. That's part of how it, it really leads us into mindfulness practice. It shifts and it changes. But it's still one single object. And then after we develop the ability to do that, then there's also the kind of concentration where you, where you take that, that ability to focus on one thing and then you move it around from moment to moment to moment. A moment of breath, a moment of hearing... A moment of itching, a moment of sadness, another moment of breath, moment after moment. This laser-like concentration going from one thing to another. Working with concentration can lead into some really strong um, absorptive states of consciousness. And, um, And those can be wonderful if they happen for you and they don't happen for everyone. And we can get attached. One of the catches with concentration and the states that come with concentration is they can be quite blissful and tranquil, and then we want them to stay. We want them to be permanent. And like everything else that has the nature to arise, they have the nature to pass away, and they end. So learning to allow them and then to let go of them is really part of the practice of working with concentration. We really need concentration. It's a very important part of our practice. We need enough concentration so that you can be here, present in this moment, ultimately with not so very many thoughts, very few thoughts at all. When you have enough concentration, the hindrances don't get through easily. And so there's this profound coming together of the heart and the mind with our experience one moment after another. And so the last of these stages is the stage of equanimity. Last stages of these factors. Not really a stage. Um, The factor of equanimity. Galway Cannell has a a great poem that is really an equanimity poem. He says, Whatever happens, Whatever what is, is, Is what I want. Only that, but that. Whatever what is, is what I want. Only that, but that." So equanimity is, comes, it's the fruit of all of these different, all of the mindfulness and the working with the rousing factors and being able to have concentration. And we come to this place where we're quite balanced. Whatever what is, is, is fine. Whatever comes is fine. Rain, sun, sadness, itching, the breath, breakfast, tea, one thing after another, just what is. And we're, we have this place of balance and steadiness. Nothing disturbs it. It's a, it's a state that's a bit like, Sometimes it's described as being like a mountain, you know, so that the mountain is just there. These mountains are just here, and we walk on them. And the turkeys come and go, and the turkey vultures fly over, and the deers, and the storms, and the landslides, and one, th- you know, whatever is happening. And the mountain's just there, you know, and it doesn't, it doesn't uh, move. It's an experience that's quite spacious. The mind is relaxed and open. And these things arise and pass in the space of the mind. doesn't matter what they are. Another image that has stayed with me most of my practice years is one that Jack gave us when I was sitting early on. It was a poster that was of a, um, some Swami or other who was teaching people to meditate. And the Swami was, is surfing on a surfboard but he's surfing. You know that pose in yoga that is the tree where one leg is up and your hands are up over? So he's on the surfboard in the tree pose, <laughs> big waves. How how he did it, I don't know. Um, since I watch surfers a lot in Santa Cruz, it's not so easy. So And the poster says, um, learn to surf, come meditate with Swami, whoever it was. And so Equanimity is really the ability to surf the waves of your heart and mind, the waves of your experience. Whatever wave comes, that's what it is, and you're able to sit with it. And it's the this factor is, I think, it's a great factor, and it's a factor that is very mm, strong and present in the great beings of our time, who are able to do the Mother Teresa's and the Gandhis. Or I think one of the images that has stayed with me again for many years is um, the image of one of those monks in Vietnam who self-immolated and who sat, who sat through the fire taking him. And it's, it's a profound image of some kind of deep steadiness and equanimity. I'm not recommending that. But the fires of your own... Heart and life and sadness are probably quite sufficient to learn how to sit through. We can each learn to work with these factors. Where am I today? Am I sluggish? Oh, a little sluggish. Okay. So Let's see. Can I bring some more investigations? Can I bring some energy? Is there some element of joy that I can develop in my practice? Am I restless? Itchy, wanting to move, the body not happy. Is there a way that I can then develop some tranquility and some, some um, concentration and some equanimity and bring some calming to my practice? So really working with these factors as a way of balancing the mind. And mindfulness is the foundation. Mindfulness is what is required to be able to do any of this. When he was dying, the Buddha said, Make of yourself a light. It was one almost the last words that he said. Make of yourself. It was the last words. They were the last words. And, um, you know, as I've said, I've I've thought about that so often when I was on this pilgrimage. And one of the places we visited was Kushinagar, which is the place where he actually died. There's a very large... um, statue, except it's, it's not like a standing-up statue, but it's a horizontal statue of the Buddha lying there. It's very touching, and touching to realize that this being who taught us so much died, just like you will die and I will die, and his teaching, this Dharma, still lives on and lights our way. So I think I want to end with this poem from Mary Oliver that is about that moment and perhaps will be some inspiration for you to develop your own lamp. Make of yourself a light, said the Buddha before he died. I think of this every morning as the east begins to tear off its many clouds of darkness to send up the first signal, a white fan streaked with pink and violet, even green. An old man, he lay down between two solid trees, and he might have said anything knowing it was his final hour. The light burns upward, it thickens and settles over the fields. Around him, the villagers gathered and stretched forward to listen. Even before the sun itself hangs, disattached in the blue air, I am touched everywhere by its ocean of yellow waves. No doubt he thought of everything that had happened in his difficult life. And then I feel the sun itself as it blazes over the hills, like a million flowers on fire. Clearly I'm not needed, yet I feel myself turning into something of inexplicable value. Slowly, beneath the branches, he raised his head. He looked into the faces of that frightened crowd. Make of yourself a light said the Buddha before he died. So let's sit for just a moment. Thank you very much for your presence and for your practice. Thank you for listening.